Well, it's Good Friday. Let us read from Mark, chapter 14, verses 42 to 52. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, said to them, Have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. A British-American poet, W.H. Auden, has this to say about Good Friday. Christmas and Easter can be subjects for poetry, but Good Friday, like Auschwitz, cannot. The reality is so horrible, it is not surprising that people should have found it a stumbling block to faith. Now, Auden, on one side, makes a good point, and he's basically saying two things here. He says, Good Friday is so terrible to watch. The death of the Son of God, crucifixion, is so terrible that it is actually a stumbling block to faith. And when you think about skeptics, Skeptics really, and I I was one of them, they question why we would ever commemorate, if not venerate, the death of God. Because to them it seems like cosmic child abuse. That there's this God who feels so dishonored that he has to take out his vengeance on the, the, the offenders. And as a result, he takes his innocent son and kills him. And so skeptics will say, it's just child abuse. What kind of a God is this? They can't fathom any of it. They think it's a, it's a God of bloodlust. And of course, they also say, besides, what sin is there to atone for anyway? It's all hogwash. It's just the church trying to keep us you know, compliant. There's no sin to atone for in the first place. And so the brutality of Good Friday is a stumbling block to skeptics. They don't understand. Why would, it ha- why would a good God do this? Couldn't he just snap his fingers and get, do away with the cost of sin? So it's a stumbling block. But it's also difficult for Christians because Good Friday is an unrelenting assault on our thoughts that we are good. It reminds us that 2,000 years before Nietzsche declared it, we killed the Son of God. We killed God. He wasn't waiting for philosophy to do it or the Enlightenment to do it. We did it. And Good Friday forces us to stand face to face with this. And it's made even worse for us Christians because we see the contrasts on display. We see the evil of humanity, but the goodness of God. We see the ugliness of humanity, but the beauty of Christ. And these contrasts should be weighty on us. They should weigh on us. However, as Paul mentioned at the start, where I think Auden misses the point just a little is although Good Friday points to the failure of humanity, it also points to the love of God. And as a result, it's actually disingenuous to, own, to pretend on Friday as if Sunday doesn't happen. We know it does. That doesn't mean you forget and walk past Good Friday, but it does mean we don't mourn without hope. And it's difficult to, you know, if you've watched the movie, it's difficult to 
mourn when things go bad when you know it ends well. And so all at once, we're called to mourn and to reflect deeply on the failure of, of humanity, but also to look forward to, even on Good Friday, the incredible love of God in this scene, specifically in that naked man who runs away, you're going to see. You see the incredible love of God, even in the midst of our worst. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at those two things only today, quickly. The failure of humanity and the love of God. And a quick note about the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a guy who likes to leave tension. Mark, all through his Gospel, will leave things unresolved and force you to stew and to sit in it and to ask questions about what's going on here. He's going to intentionally make things seem paradoxical. And he wants us to wrestle with it. He's not trying to give us a ready-made lunch. He wants us to make our own lunch. And so we're going to see that here. So let's look at the failure of humanity. G.K. Chesterton, Christian thinker, uh, had one of the things he thought about um, Good Friday was he said, you know, it's not so much that humanity fails on Good Friday as much as it is that the best of humanity fails, that we can be no better than the people we were on Good Friday. And that's the great tragedy. And what he means, let me expound on that a little as for what we see in this passage and in, in, in the Bible as a whole. On Good Friday, we see a number of things collapsing. The first one is, in no particular order, civilization. So the very best civilization humanity had ever been able to come up with up to that point was the Roman Empire. It was marveled at for its aqueducts, its architecture, sculpture. It developed a landscape art movement, poetry, the works of history. It creates calendars, laws, technology, military. It is the height of civilization. It has the greatest philosophers at the time, arguably the Greeks before it, but you had the Stoics and you had Cicero and Seneca, all these guys. And the height of human civilization, the best it could do was produce ignorance to God. Because when he came, they didn't even recognize him. The best it could do was crucify God. So we see the greatest nation in human history to that point failing. It was unable to, to do what it was called to do, which is to glorify God. Religion. The best, so the Jewish, the Jews at the time, in the first century, there is no more sophisticated religious group on the planet. There's lots of different religions, but none with the sophistication that has a written law that they claim are written by, the God, by their God, who claim to have special revelation, meaning their literal written words of God, and to claim that for millennia they had been hammered by God into a shape that looked like him. This is the most sophisticated religious system the world knew at the time. And remember, we have to remember that this sophisticated religious system produced leaders who killed the God that they were supposed to be worshipping, and produced guards that went and arrested him. Mark makes a point of telling us that it's the Jewish guards, not Roman centurions. It's the Jews that did it. And we have to wrestle with this. You know, it's the entire subject for which the religious system existed was God. And yet they missed him when he came. It's like being the, the president of the Wayne Gretzky fan club, but failing to notice when he shows up at a meeting. It makes almost no sense. And yet that's exactly what it does. So the best of civilization fails on Good Friday. The best they can do is carry out the orders to kill the Son of God. The best religious systems we have can only condemn God to death and not recognize him as the Savior. We then have courage. Notice Mark doesn't say it's Peter. It says one of them takes out a sword and chops off the ear of, we don't know the name here, but it's Malchus, the high priest's servant. So 
Peter is being a courageous guy. It took courage to stand up to guards and to try to hack off the ear of one of them. But do you notice? It accomplishes nothing. Human courage, which we think can overcome. This is what we make Avengers movies about, right? Human, you know, people, let's save the world. And we think we can overcome by our determination. Peter's courage not only fails to accomplish what it was intended to do, Christ is still arrested, but all the other Gospels, when it shows this scene, the Gospel writers have Jesus turn to Peter and say, what are you doing? Put away your sword. Not Mark. Mark is much more harsh. Mark has Jesus not even acknowledging it. It goes from the chop of the ear, you'll notice he struck the servant, the high priest, verse 47, and then the next verse is, and Jesus said to them, and then he speaks to the guards. Human courage is not even worth a witness of God. Human courage fails entirely. It's misdirected. It's mis- entirely misdirected in this case. And so, uh, and I'll, get to, I'll say much more about Peter in a minute, but let's, let's leave it there. So human civilization fails. Human religion fails. Human courage fails. Next, loyalty. Repeatedly, Mark says there's the 12 of them, and these other disciples are there. Now, these men were not just random. These are guys who were poured into by Christ for 12 or for, sorry, for, for three years, roughly. They were loved. And yet, the best they can do is run away when the going gets tough. And so human loyalty, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, important. We all, claim, you know, we all make claims of loyalty. I'll never leave you. That's not true. And human loyalty fails. In fact, notice what Mark does. Brilliant. Mark, again, he doesn't say that they, after everything went down, they, they left the scene. It says... And they all left him. Mark makes a point of showing that these people, these disciples, left him. They weren't just fleeing a dangerous situation. They were abandoning their friend, their savior, their rabbi. And that's an important point. He wants us to know that they left and loyalty failed. Not just that. Think about intimacy. We're in the age of the modern cult of human love and, and, and affection. We're under the impression, thanks to uh, bands like the Beatles and everybody else, that all you need is love, right? Terrible theologians say things like, love wins, and completely distort what that's supposed to mean. And we romanticize human love, right? When, and uh, uh, probably the height of um, romanticism, talking about how important love will overcome everything. And of course, there's a smidgen of truth. Love will overcome everything, but not yours, but the height of romanticism, which makes human love seem the most wonderful, even, but also is the biggest lie, comes from a British philosopher named Rick Astley, who says, never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to run around and desert you, never going to make you cry, never going to say goodbye, never going to tell a lie and hurt you. You see, this is syrupy, saccharine nonsense, but we love it. And don't, isn't it true that when you met your wife or your spouse, you say things like, baby, I would swim the ocean for you. <laughs> the simple fact is, you will not. <laughs> I would do it for about three feet. I'd say, you know, it's kind of cold. There's, a, there's other fish in the sea, you know. That's it. But human devo- the point is human devotion, human intimacy. It's skin deep. And of course we say these heights of love because that's what love does. Love aspires to extremes. It expires to be bound forever. That's why we get married, because love binds. But this myth that human love is all we need is proven, like human intimacy fails on Good Friday. 
And Mark is so incredible again here, wanting us to see it. Notice what he says. Judas came. This is verse 43. Judas came, one of the twelve. Earlier in the chapter, he says, Judas Iscariot. This is only a few verses earlier. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Christ says, my betrayer and the betrayer. Four different references to him. Not say, Listen, we were introduced to Judas in chapter 3. Why does he repeatedly say, Judas, one of the twelve? Because Mark wants you to know that this wasn't a stranger abandoning him. It was a friend. A friend abandoned. Remember, he's one of the twelve. One of the ones we poured, that Christ poured into has abandoned him. The idea of the kiss of death, it's common in modern parlance now, and it comes from here, and it means to bind yourself and endear yourself to something that will eventually be your death, downfall, or destruction. And Mark, again, is brilliant, especially because Greek is not his first language. But he uses the word here for kiss that is an intimate, earnest kiss, not a romantic one, but a kiss that is the kind of thing you'd give somebody after you haven't seen them for a long time. The kiss that you'd give somebody who you really honor and respect. And Mark is building what, this, what literature calls pathos. He's trying to get you to see how sad and pathetic the scene is. How earnestly, how, how, how fake all the intimacy was from Judas. And to make us realize, man, our love, as much as we think it's up here, is really not that high. And so, he's increasing this. But, you know, it's actually what Mark doesn't say that is almost more important for us. Because if we left it here, it would be easy enough for people to say things like, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. We've progressed as a culture. We're smarter, more sophisticated, more compassionate. We're different people. We don't burn witches anymore. We don't do all sorts of things. So that's an ancient time. But Mark, again, forces us to realize you and I are being held culpable for this. We are the ones who let down Christ, not just the ancients. And he does it the way he writes. There's two things he doesn't say here. The first thing Mark doesn't say is he doesn't say why Judas did it. Other gospels will say Judas got paid. Now, understand, if you look carefully, you're going to realize no other gospel writer says he did it for money. We think that. All it says is he did it and he got paid. But that's beside the point. The point is Mark says nothing about the motives. Why? Because Mark wants you to fill yourself in the gap and say, why do I betray Christ? There's no motive. The question to you as a reader is, why is it you do it? What is it that causes you to run away? What is it that causes you to do things you know have, that led to him being on the cross? So we're invited into the story, so we're not let off the hook. And something even more interesting happens. It's not just the motive, but he leaves the naked man unidentified. In fact, some scholars think it was Mark himself writing himself into the story. But the truth is, we just don't know who it was. But the fact that he's unnamed suggests that he is a placeholder. He is every man. He represents every human being. That all in all is really, let's face it, it's the anti-disciple. Because disciples give up everything to follow Christ. This guy gave up everything, including his clothes, to run from Christ and abandon him. And so as a model, it's basically, have you ever been to the um, uh, carnivals? And they have those cardboard or those wood cutouts. And it's got the farmer holding a pitchfork and the pig beside him and your job is to put your head in the hole, and somebody takes a picture, you're the naked man. You're sticking your head in that, in that thing. And Mark wants us to see you and I are culpable. We were just as much there as humanity at the garden, abandoning Christ as anyone. So, now if that's the miserable failure part 
of, of Good Friday. Well, where is the love of God displayed in this passage? Because it can be hard to see. Let me say a few things. First, in the Gospel of Mark, at chapter 11 is when Christ enters in Holy Week, where he enters Jerusalem. Everything changes in the Gospel of Mark there. Up until chapter 11, you see Jesus kind of going with the flow. He's reacting to things that are happening. He's trying to tell people not to reveal who he is. But as soon as chapter 11 hits, he's a different Jesus, it seems, because he immediately begins to tell people what to do. And you see that he is now, all of a sudden, it seems like he's in control. Not that he wasn't before, but it seems like he's now in control of his destiny and he has set his face towards the cross. So the very first thing he does in chapter 11 is he starts bossing people around. Go into the city and find me a donkey. When you get to that city, you're going to find it here. Someone's going to say this to you. You respond in this way. He's no longer a stagehand. He's now the director. He has full control. Go here and find an upper room. Pay this much. Tell this person. He's got all the details. So he is now in control. And we see it in this passage as well. In fact, this is the reason I started at verse 42. Because he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See what he does? The moment he says, my betrayer is at hand, Mark then says, in typical Markan fashion, immediately Judas shows up. Meaning, he says it, and then after it happens, so. And then later he says, let whatever's going to happen, happen. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Which is Christ saying, I know this is going to happen. He's in control. I know my betrayer is at hand. I know what's happening in these next moments. Not to say he didn't necessarily before chapter 11, but he's clearly the one orchestrating it. And what that, the effect that that has on us, it should have, is like when you're watching a movie and everything looks very grim for the hero, very grim, but then the camera shows up on the hero's face, his or her face, and they wink or something. They betray some sort of a sign that lets you know, oh my goodness, they're not doomed. They have a plan all along. They, they've got a rescue plan. They have a way out. And Christ, at this moment, when we see that he is in control of it, he is robbing the betrayal of all of its power. He's saying, I know Judas and the authorities and the enemy thinks that Good Friday is going to be the end of me, but I've got a plan. I'm actually orchestrating it. I am under, I'm aware of what's happening. And so it robs, this, um, it robs the betrayal of all of its authority entirely. Um, now, and this is why you can't, with, with Auden at the start, we can't completely say that it's only misery on Good Friday because there's good that happened. There's, he's go, it's not just that he's forced to go to the cross, he chose to go to the cross. And so we lament the fact that it required the death of the Son of God to atone for our miserable sins, but we rejoice as well with the fact that he chose to do it. And so there's this tension. But today we do want to resonate and focus, of course, on the more, a little bit more on the reflective, so, sober side of Good Friday. But let me point even more directly to the love of Christ, I think is just mind-blowing in this passage, which is very difficult to see unless you're really paying attention, I think. It's the naked man. I think the naked man, as much as I, it's, it seems weird to speak about a naked guy in church, I think it reveals the love of God in such an incredible way. Let me explain. Two things were told about him. He's naked and he's wearing linen. So the very fact that he's naked, think about this. He is a man in that culture of honor and shame that is more willing to run through the streets of Jerusalem naked and bring, bring shame to himself and his family than he is to be arrested and identified with Christ. He runs. In fact, this is actually Peter as well. Think about Peter. 
Peter is willing to die for Christ, but not die with Christ. There's a difference. So he raises the sword and smacks a guy. He's willing to fight for Christ, but when it comes, no, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be shamed, you might be crucified, he runs. And so humanity in this naked man and in Peter are being shown to be folks who are half-hearted at best. Again, we're willing to be there, but we don't want to go all the way. We don't want to go to the cross with Christ. But think about this linen, the linen now. It's very interesting that Mark uses the word linen. He could have said that this guy was wearing a robe or clothes. Your translations may even say clothes. I think um, New Living Translation says clothes. But it's literally the word linen. It doesn't even say a garment of linen. It just says linen. He only uses that word twice, ever, in his entire gospel. It doesn't show up almost anywhere in Scripture, except for in this spot. But think about, first of all, let's think about that linen. This man is running from the authorities. They grab onto his cloak, and he shakes it off kind of like a toddler who's told to go to bed, right? He'll leave everything behind, but he won't go to bed. And this, kid, this, this man leaves everything behind, and as he runs, the linen stays on the floor. That linen, for Mark, becomes a symbol. But a symbol of what? Cowardice, weakness, sin, shame, abandonment. It becomes a symbol of all humanity's sin, all of it. And it's lying there on the floor. And he only uses this word one other time, interestingly. And he does it in the next, I think it's the next chapter, in chapter 15. And it's after Christ has died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea is given the okay by the Roman authorities to take the body of Christ down from the tree, from the cross, and to bury it. And it says, and then he wrapped Christ in linen. Not a sh- it says linen shroud in your translation, but the shroud isn't there. That is added because that's what we assume. It just says he was wrapped in linen, the exact same word. Only two times he uses this word, back-to-back chapters. I think what Mark is doing is he's trying to draw a connection. That filthy, sin-riddled garment that's on the floor, the example and, and symbol of all of our shame and misery and sin, is put on by Christ. He takes it and he wraps himself. He's wrapped in our sin for our sake. And I don't think that's by accident at all. And when he does it, see, because we have to be careful of how we speak about the cross. Christ doesn't simply pay the the penalty as if it's a disinterested, I've got more money than them, let me pay the debt. He, putting on the cloak, allows himself to be identified with you. Let me use a a very not as severe example. I was in Portugal when I was uh, 12, and uh, somebody thought they were being very kind and bought me a soccer jersey, uh, for Porto, which is two hours north of Lisbon, and I was in Lisbon. And I'm wearing this, this jersey, you know, eating my ice cream as a kid would in a carnival. And as I'm at this carnival, I realize all the local Benfica fans, the local Lisbon, they're just cursing me. They're spitting at me. One, I actually started a fist fight with a kid. My grandmother had to break us up by pulling our ear. How old-fashioned is that? Um, <laughs> so I'm like fist fighting a guy because I don't know what's happening. He's just spitting on me. Um, but the reason I w- I w- that happened was because I had the nerve to be identified with someone who is despised in the culture. That's a small example. But when Christ comes and puts on that cloak, you see what he is doing. He is not simply saying, I'm going to be their advocate. He is willing to march alongside us and to be even ex- be, uh, misidentified as one of us. So we can say things, let me use a, an example. We can say things like, we want to stand with people who are being... Um, shamed and mocked for their sexual 
preferences. Even if we don't agree with them of where they stand sexually, we shouldn't want them to be hurt and beaten. Fair enough. Are we willing to just say that with our mouths, or are we willing to march with them in the street to protect their rights and their, free, their, their, their body, their, their, their person, to even having going so far as to have other church members and people here say, Carl, are you one of them? Are you, are, you, are you that close to them that you're willing to be identified as one of them? Christ was willing and so confident in who he was that he could come and he could bear our sin and be identified as a sinner, though he was not one, because he knew he didn't have to protect his reputation. He had to protect your salvation. And he was willing to bear that by putting on the shroud that the naked man and you and I left behind. And for this reason, and this reason alone, we can't just mourn today. We should, to an extent. But there has to be at least a smirk, because we have such a king that would do this for us. And I'll close here, and the team can come back up, I guess, and with this, this line from Isaac Watts. Everybody probably all know this old hymn. He says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Let's pray.